The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. I'm Vic Reclitus, a reporter at Market Watch, and I'm pleased today to welcome John Kirby. He's the coordinator for strategic communications at the National Security Council. Welcome, Admiral, and thank you very much for joining us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks so much for letting me do this. Uh, let's start out with one thing that you talked about at Monday's White House press briefing um, related to the Russia-Ukraine war. You said it's too early to speculate on the impact of the attempted rebellion in Russia over the past weekend. Um, and you also emphasized the U.S. wasn't involved. Um, it has been a couple more days now. Uh, what can you say now about the possible impact? I think I would say pretty much the same thing. Um, again, these events really only transpired over the course of the last few days. And quite frankly, um, you know, there's still a little unfolding here. Um, and we don't have perfect visibility on exactly how Mr. Putin is handling this, uh, the fallout from uh, from these events. So I think it's, I, again, I think it's just too soon to make any grand pronouncements about uh, what effect it's going to have long term on Mr. Putin or his uh, regime, uh, or quite frankly, the war in Ukraine. Uh, the counteroffensive is proceeding. You've heard President Zelensky say that, uh, you know, that they're going cautiously, uh, but they have made some progress, uh, probably not as much as they uh, as they would have liked, but they have made some progress. What we're, we're going to stay focused on, uh, regardless of what the impact of these recent events has, we've got to stay focused on making sure Ukraine has what they need to continue to be successful going forward and to, and to be successful in the counteroffensive. And I think you just saw uh, just uh, yesterday, uh, President Biden uh, signed out a 41st now presidential drawdown authority uh, package for Ukraine, something to the tune of $500 million, which included a lot of capabilities that the Ukrainians are going to need, including mine clearing uh, assistance, which is going to be uh, very, very vital. Um, well, speaking of the 41st drawdown, I mean, some Republicans in Congress and many Americans are really skeptical about continuing to spend money to support Ukraine as it deals with Russia's invasion. Um, what do you say to people who have Ukraine fatigue um, and who no longer want to see taxpayer money going over there? First of all, we've had tremendous support on Capitol Hill, both uh, from a bipartisan Hill, perspective, both, but also uh, from a bipartisan by camera. There's a small group. There's a small group of House Republicans who object or raise concerns about the minority. But they're in the minority, and not certainly in the leadership positions that matter when it comes to moving forward. So we look forward, the president is optimistic that we're going to continue to get uh, support from uh, Capitol Hill. Um, and the support in the American public is actually still quite high as well. I don't know what the latest numbers are, but, um, but certainly we understand that some Americans have questions about how long this is going to go on and why it matters to them. And, and what we're trying to, to, uh, to make clear is that um, this is obviously, first and foremost, this is about Ukraine and uh, Ukrainian sovereignty and Ukrainian lives and livelihoods. But, it, but it's bigger than that. Um, 
it's about our security on the European continent and quite frankly, potentially around the world. If we were simply to walk away and just let Mr. Putin take Ukraine, which by the way, he still wants. He doesn't believe Ukraine should exist as a independent country. If we were just to walk away and let him do that, where would it stop or would it stop? And think about the, the cost in blood and treasure, uh, in, including American blood and treasure, if in fact uh, this war expands beyond Ukraine. And I think most Americans understand that. They understand what's at stake here. And I think Americans also understand this idea of independence. And we remember that in our own American revolution, uh, we needed foreign help uh, to uh, to be able to, to, to establish and then maintain our independence. Well, Ukraine is fighting for its independence. They're, they're, they're fighting for the very right to exist as a sovereign state. And they need and they have received a lot of foreign support. And that's, that's critical. And I think of all our founding ideals, this idea of independence is something that all Americans can understand. Okay. Um, well, thank you for bearing with us with some tech glitches there. I'm, I'm hearing you well, at least. Um, you know, on the flip side, we've gotten one viewer question already um, on the same topic, but with a different view. It's uh, Dana asks, um, is the U.S. strategy behind its armament policy for Ukraine too modest incrementally to succeed? Is the U.S. just trying to gradually wear down the Russians or to decisively position the Ukrainians to win? We're very much... Uh, and we have been uh, very clear about this, very much interested in making sure that Ukraine can succeed, that Ukraine can win on the battlefield so that they can win at the negotiating table, uh, so that they can, again, get back their independence and uh, preserve their um, uh, their sovereign borders, internationally recognized uh, borders. So it's very much about Ukraine being successful on the battlefield so that they can be successful uh, at the negotiating table. But we're a long way away, potentially, from the negotiating table right now. And the Ukrainians are in uh, a very significant fight. And I would tell you, you know, and this idea of incrementalism, and I understand where it's coming from. Uh, we have evolved the security assistance that we provided Ukraine as the war itself has evolved. In the first few weeks and months, what Ukraine really needed uh, was a way to get at those armored columns that were moving down out of Belarus towards Kyiv. Uh, and so we were very focused on uh, an, uh, jab, javelin anti-tank missiles and, and giving them uh, the kinds of uh, heavy rounds, arms, and ammunition that they needed to, to defend against the, those columns, in, including short-range short uh, air defense like Stinger missiles. And then as the war went on and Mr. Putin decided he was going to focus on the uh, the area of the Donbass in the east of the country, which is a lot of farmland, very flat, like kind of like Kansas. Artillery, long-range fires were going to were going to be what the Ukrainians needed the most, and of course we prioritized that, including the the HIMARS, the uh, the advanced rocket systems, um, the artillery rocket systems. Sorry. So uh, then then of course, Mr. Putin decided he was going to buy Iranian drones and launch cruise missiles and long-range drones. Uh, inside not only the Donbass area, uh, but throughout the rest of the country, including Kyiv. And so longer range air defense became a priority, and we're focusing on that. Right now, in the fight that the Ukrainians are in, in this counteroffensive, there are the four A's we talk about that they really need, air defense, artillery, uh, ammunition, and armor. And again, if you look at the package that the president just signed out yesterday, you'll see that all four of those categories are well covered in that, to include, as I said, obstacle clearing and mine clearing 
uh, equipment as well. So we are in lockstep with the Ukrainians, talking to them almost every day and making sure that, that, that we're giving them what they need in the weeks and months ahead. Now, um, obviously, there are uh, there's just there's talk about you know con, con, you know the F-16s and the, the longer range missile systems. Uh, we're working our way through all that, uh, but but in in terms of what we're providing and how, it really has been done in lockstep with not only what the Ukrainians say they need, but uh, what they're actually uh, need needing on the battlefield in, for the weeks and months ahead. Okay, um, so a, a top Wall Street commodities analyst said the White House did contingency planning to keep the oil market well supplied if that attempted revolt uh, impacted Russian oil output. I was wondering, um, is what can you tell us about that uh, contingency planning? I, I would just tell you that without getting into the specifics of, of uh, what we, um, uh, how we monitored events over the last few days and, uh, and uh, what, if anything, uh, we did in terms of planning, I would just tell you that uh, from the beginning of the war, President Biden has been focused on making sure that we balance appropriately supply and demand in the oil market. Um, and a big part of being able to do that without letting Mr. Putin profiteer, a big, a big effort in that regard was, was getting uh, international support for this uh, price cap uh, on oil, which has been working. It has uh, kept Russian oil on the market, but has limited Mr. Putin's ability to profiteer off of that oil on the market, uh, and so it's it's been it's been very effective, and uh, and we continue to talk to uh, our partners and uh, and our allies with respect to the the, the price cap, uh, you know, on a regular basis, and and that and that has occurred, and that will continue to occur. Um, so, sort of related to that, um, um, there's been some disappointment about the impact of Western sanctions on Russia. Um, Russia's economy shrunk by two percent last year, but is expected to grow this year. Um, even as the British and German economies shrink. Um, why aren't the sanctions having more bite and what can be done about it? We would argue that they are having a bite. I mean, there's something to the order of $300 billion now in reserves that he can't, Mr. Putin can't get access to. Um, and last year he recorded uh, a deficit uh, in his budget. Um, and we know that he's having trouble uh, in the defense industrial sector in terms of uh, repopulating his uh, cruise missiles because a lot of the microelectronics that he needs to produce them uh, are not available to him anymore. And that's one of the reasons why, quite frankly, he's reaching out to uh, Iran to, to buy drones. Um, and now he's uh, arranging with Iran to build a, a drone manufacturing facility uh, in Russia because he doesn't have the ability to do it uh, on his own. So we know they're having a bite. We, we n never made the case that uh, the sanctions were going to destroy Russia uh, or destroy uh, uh, their economy. I mean, you know, this is not about the Russian people. It's about the Kremlin, and it's about Mr. Putin's ability to wage war. And that's why I want to go, you know, back quickly to the to the price cap on oil. Uh, you know, we didn't want to take all Russian oil off the market because it's a significant part of the market, and we wanted to make sure that that prices globally and certainly here at home were manageable uh, for consumers. Uh, but we did want to limit Mr. Putin's ability to profiteer. So, uh, so I would say, first of all, they are having an effect. Number two, uh, sanctions uh, take a while to see the effects. And we're, again, those effects are starting to be felt much more keenly uh, in the Kremlin than they were just six months ago. Um, uh, but number three, again, this is not about war on the Russian people. It's not about uh, subjugating the whole population of Russia. Uh, it's about uh, making sure that we are making it harder on Mr. Putin to, to fight this war, and, and we'll, we'll continue to do that. Okay. Um, 
you all are getting ready for the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania in two weeks. Um, what are the goals for this big summit? So there's a lot on the agenda. Um, uh, clearly, the war in Ukraine will be uh, top of uh, top of that agenda. Um, and I think you can expect that the, the, the allies will discuss the support that we have provided NATO nations have provided uh, on a bilateral basis to Ukraine um, and what that support needs to look like going forward. Because as we meet uh, in Vilnius in a couple of weeks, clearly the counteroffensive will still be ongoing. So there'll be a battlefield updates and there'll be a sense of, uh, of what, uh, what support Ukraine is going to continue to need uh, going in, in the immediate future. And then, of course, uh, going forward. I think there's also going to be a significant amount of attention paid uh, to NATO's eastern flank and, and what support uh, that eastern flank uh, still might need going forward, because it's still very tenuous uh, in Europe. I think uh, you don't have to look beyond the headlines to see that the, that the security situation on the European continent has changed, and, and most likely permanently so. So it's not is changing or will change. It has changed. The United States alone has now contributed an additional 20,000 troops to the European continent. We started out with, when the war started, about 80,000. Uh, now we're up to 100,000. And President Biden has put in place uh, processes for that number to stay the same, to, to keep on a rotational basis that number of forces. That's an enormous amount uh, of American troops, resources, weapons, capabilities, aircraft ships. Um, and so I think you're going to see the NATO allies talk about uh, what that eastern flank uh, of the alliance needs to needs to look like uh, in in coming years, uh, and so I think you'll see a, a discussion about um, NATO's viability uh, and NATO's own collective self-defense posture uh, on the continent. So I mean, there's going to be a lot to talk about. Oh, and not to mention, uh, very exciting that we're going to have uh, you know the attendance of Finland, our brand new NATO ally. So NATO is now at 31, um, and of course we're still. Uh, very hopeful, and the president's optimistic uh, that very soon the alliance could could reach 32 with the admission of, of Sweden. Um, Turkey remains a hurdle for Sweden. Um, what's being done to get Turkey um, to allow Sweden to join NATO? The the, the Turks and uh, the Swedes are still talking. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was press coverage of that uh, this morning, that those talks are ongoing. And we think that dialogue is really important. Now, I couldn't begin to predict for you, uh, you know, uh, when... Uh, Turkey's concerns will be allayed to the degree that that, that they will uh, that they will vote for Sweden to come in. Uh, that's really between those two countries to work out. Uh, so I'm not predicting that it's going to happen at, at Vilnius, uh, but we do believe that, that that both countries will get there and that we'll get Sweden in the alliance. And that's a great thing because this is a military that, at least speaking for the United States, we're familiar with, uh, we train with, we 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 know them, they know us. Uh, they use a, a lot uh, of American kit, uh, and so this is a very capable military that will uh, add significant uh, uh, capabilities, significant uh, credibility uh, to uh, to the NATO alliance. So we're looking forward to them uh, coming on board. But again, that's, uh, the discussions are ongoing. The fact that they're ongoing is a good thing, and really that's up to those two countries to speak to. Um, so I want to remind viewers to, to submit questions. We've been getting uh, a lot of good ones. I want to throw one out now. Um, so switching over to, to China, um, viewer's name is Jack. Uh, what is the administration doing to prevent China from putting military troops and possibly weapons in Cuba? Well, look, I would tell you that um, we have been, I mean, it's important to step back a little bit here. We, we've been certainly mindful since President Biden came into office that uh, China was trying to expand 
uh, and grow their influence and capabilities, not only around the world, but certainly in this hemisphere. And likewise, we've been aware for quite some time that uh, that they have been trying to improve their relationship with Cuba. Um, and I would just tell you that uh, we have made it plain and clear to both countries uh, our deep concerns about uh, the, uh, the the increase or improvement uh, of, of capabilities uh, on the island of, of Cuba. That's point one. Point two, uh, that we have and will continue to take the appropriate steps uh, to mitigate any threat uh, or any challenge to our own national security uh, apparatus uh, that could be represented by anything that they might do uh, on the island of Cuba. We, 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 uh, it's not as if um, we haven't been aware uh, that they have uh, that they have certain capabilities there, particularly in, in terms of intelligence gathering, um, and it's not like we haven't again taken steps to mitigate their ability to uh, to collect or to affect uh, our national security. Um, to what extent do you think China will distance itself from Russia after this attempted revolution? And I mean, and then more broadly, how would you characterize American concerns about the China Russia relationship uh, right now? So on the first question, it's difficult to know. Again, I, I, I can't speak for the PRC and, and what they're feeling and uh, about what happened over the last few days. Um, uh, we did not see a, a very um, trident uh, response or reaction by uh, the PRC to, to what happened. I think they issued a statement um, that uh, basically reiterated their uh, support for stability in Russia and for Russian sovereignty. Uh, but it, uh, but it wasn't a very sharply worded uh, or hyperbolic statement of, of any kind. So, really difficult to know um, in the long term how China is going to react to 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 what happened. Um, but um, we've also seen that since the beginning of the war, that China and Russia have have grown closer, um, and their cooperation has has deepened. And and certainly that's. That's of concern to us. I will I will add that uh, that while China has not condemned what Russia has done in Ukraine, um, and that while they uh, have not implemented the sanctions uh, that so many other countries have uh, to hold Mr. Putin accountable, neither have they provided any lethal capabilities to the Russian military. So they haven't gotten involved in in that kind of a capacity in in Russia's war making uh, ability. And they have put forward, uh, you know, thoughts about uh, uh, a peace um, and and what peace could look like, and um, and and proposed the idea that maybe they could be involved in some sort of peace proposal. And what we've said to that, and we've said it to other countries too that have uh, likewise expressed an interest in peace, is we welcome uh, any credible effort to try to arrive at a just peace in Ukraine. But here's the key. It, it's got to be a just peace in, in keeping with President Zelensky's definition of that. It has to take in mind Ukrainian sovereignty and perspectives. Uh, it, has to, it has to start with a foundation of Ukraine being the, the victim here and Russia being the aggressor. Um, and then it has to be uh, completely in line with the basic principles of the UN Charter with territorial integrity and sovereignty. Um, and if, if China is the nation that can fashion that together, then again, we would welcome that. We certainly want to see this war end. Uh, we like to see it end as, as quickly as possible. And certainly, uh, if it's going to be ending through a negotiated settlement, again, that, that it just has to be a, a credible, sustainable settlement. And the only way that's going to work is if President Zelensky is 100% behind it. 
Um, and so the fact that President Xi reached out to President Zelensky after he visited Moscow, we felt that that was a good thing. We thought it was really important that he get the perspectives directly from the Ukrainian leaders about what they're seeing and, uh, and how this war is being prosecuted, uh, certainly from, uh, from, their, from their viewpoint. Um, President Biden has said he plans to meet with uh, Chinese President Xi. Can you say um, when that meeting is going to happen? And then more broadly, how would you describe the U.S.-China relationship right now? I can't put it on a, a calendar right now. The president uh, does believe that, uh, that he and President Xi uh, will get together in the near term. Um, and when that's appropriate, uh, we'll certainly do that. Um, it was important that Secretary Blinken make that trip to Beijing, uh, and he did to try to get us back to the spirit of Bali and back in Bali in the summer uh, of, of uh, last year, the, the two leaders uh, had a, a, a good meeting and, uh, and discussed a way forward for uh, the bilateral relationship to get it on a better footing. Uh, and so Secretary Blinken's trip was really in keeping with trying to get back to the spirit of, uh, of that meeting. And there was some progress made. Now, uh, not all the lines of communication are, are open. The military-to-military -military line is, um, is still closed, and that's unfortunate given that there are so many tensions, particularly in the Indo-Pacific region, of a military nature. But it was a, it was a productive, uh, I think, set of discussions for Secretary Blinken. So uh, to answer the question, we are, we're trying to move forward here. We, we know President Biden believes that this is the most consequential bilateral relationship in the world, and that means it's got to be handled and managed responsibly. We want competition with China, a competition that the president believes we're well positioned to succeed in, but not conflict. And there's no reason for the tensions between our two countries to devolve into conflict. We want to be able to manage this competition in a responsible way. So uh, we felt pretty good coming away from Secretary Blinken's visit to Beijing. We'll see where things go in the future, uh, but it's entirely possible that there'll be additional visits by senior American officials to, to the PRC, hopefully soon. Um, and we'll see how that goes. Um, sticking with China, there was a Wall Street Journal report late yesterday that the Biden administration is considering a new ban on sales of artificial intelligence chips to China. Um, could you uh, talk about the administration's thinking on that? And are we going to see um, more things along those lines that might affect um, other sectors? Yeah, I don't have anything on that particular reporting, but I will tell you that, you know, through the CHIPS Act that the president signed, uh, we are very focused on uh, on restoring America's leadership uh, in the production of of semiconductors. I mean, we used to we used to be the world's leader, and, and now we're not. And the president wants to reverse that trend. Um, as he has said many times, uh, what we learned through the pandemic was how fragile supply chains are, particularly when it comes to semiconductors and microelectronics, um, and how reliant we are or were uh, on on countries like the PRC for that. Um, and what the president wants to make sure is that we make our supply chains more resilient um, and 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 better able to handle those kinds of global shocks, such as when there's another pandemic. Um, and what he's actually said is he wants America to be at the front end of the supply chain, not the back end, which is where we were. So we're focused on that very, very keenly. But again, I don't have anything on that particular uh, reporting to, to speak to. Um, okay, I wanted to uh, jump to an Iran question. Um, there are estimates that Iran's uh, oil exports last month were higher than a year ago. Um, how is Iran accomplishing this given the sanctions in place? Um, and does that, uh, does that type of development, does that take incentive away from Iran to, to engage in talks? 
Well, again, on the uh, by talks, I think are you talking about sort of nuclear talks? All, all, that all the everything you? that's been get uh, generating all the reporting. You know, the potential for an, an imminent uh, preliminary deal. Um, you know, stuff that that we've been hearing about this month. Yeah. Yeah. So look, uh, uh, obviously, uh, Iran is one of the most sanctioned uh, countries in, in the world. We don't want to. Uh, we we obviously will continue to look at the sanctions regime. Uh, we, we don't want to. Uh, be able. We don't want to look for opportunities to provide uh, Iran to continue to sow the kinds of uh, chaos and, and uh, instability that they have, throughout, not just throughout the region but uh, around the world. So, I mean, we're we're going to continue to look at uh, the sanctions regime to make sure it's a, a, a appropriate. Um, I would just tell you I, I, on, on these reports of a mini deal or anything like that. We are not uh, in discussions with the Iranians uh, right now with respect to their nuclear ambitions. Uh, the JCPOA is not a live football for us right now, um, but uh, we are engaged in making, well, two things. One, making sure that we can address Iran's destabilizing activity throughout the region, whether that's support to terrorism, support to Russia, uh, and the continued provision of, of drones to, to Russia, and uh, the way that the regime in Tehran continues to help Mr. Putin kill innocent Ukrainians. They're, uh, they're maritime threats. Um, uh, uh, and, and of course, their burgeoning ballistic missile uh, program, all violations of the UN Security Council resolution. So we're focused on making sure we're addressing their destabilizing behavior with our al allies and partners in the region. And that includes maintaining a very robust military presence uh, in the Middle East um, that is still not just on the ground, but, uh, but at sea. At the same time, we do and we will and we must continue to talk to, through dialogue, appropriate dialogue channels, talk with the Iranians about wrongfully detained Americans uh, in their country and do what we can to get those wrongfully detained uh, Americans home. That effort is compartmentalized. It's separate and distinct from the way we're dealing with the other things that Iran is doing. Uh, uh, we, but we want to get these Americans home and uh, we make no apologies about uh, trying to test out different ways to do that and having discussions with the with the Iranians. And I wish that I could sit here and tell you that uh, you know that that we've got all that solved and uh, and those Americans will be coming home soon. But but uh, we're just not there right now, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep at it. Uh, we're gonna focus on uh, on those discussions uh, every single day, as we do with other wrongfully detained Americans around the world. And we've got uh, two two in Russia. Uh, Mr. Gershkovich, uh, uh, Wall Street Journal reporter, and of course, Paul Whalen, uh, both uh, wrongfully detained uh, out of Moscow. We're, we want to get them home as well. Um, uh, for, um, let's see, uh, I wanted to jump to a, to a viewer question. Um, uh, this is Georgia's asking um, basically about Ukraine's, uh, how, how Ukraine is doing Ukraine's economy. She's saying, what are your views on the viability of Ukraine's capital markets. I think, I mean, more broadly, she's asking, um, what's your sense of, of how Ukraine Ukraine is holding up? Yeah, I'm certainly not expert enough to talk about uh, their market too specifically. That, that's a little bit out of my lane. Um, uh, Ukraine is focused rightly uh, on the war. Uh, and that's, that's really eating up almost all their uh, attention. Um, many nations, and led by the United States, have been providing financial assistance so that Ukraine's government can continue to pay its workers, pay its troops, pay its bills, um, and do what it can to keep uh, keep the lights on and the heat on as much as they can uh, in the country. 
Um, uh, so the, their economy certainly has been affected, uh, but it's because they're in the middle of a war. And so they're, they're, their main focus is really making sure that they can fund the ability to continue to fight. Now, that said, uh, the export of grain is a, a huge driver of uh, the Ukrainian economy. It was before the war, and quite frankly, it still is. And uh, that's why we were working so closely with the UN and with President Erdogan of Turkey uh, to get that Black Sea initiative in place uh, and extended a number of times. Now it's coming up for another decision here uh, in a month or so. Um, and the Russians have indicated that they may not sign on for another extension. Um, uh, obviously, we're going to continue to press them and urge them to do that uh, because it does have a significant impact on the Ukrainian economy, but it also has a significant impact on food insecurity around the world, particularly in the so-called global south. Uh, so many countries in Africa, for instance, are reliant on Ukrainian grain. I mean, Europe too, but certainly in, in Africa. Uh, and, uh, and it's important that we, A, make sure that African countries know we're focused on making sure we can keep that grain flowing, uh, and that it's Putin's war in, in Ukraine that has affected it, uh, but B, that uh, that we're gonna that we're also gonna uh, look for ways to 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 make uh, to make uh, to, to provide additional flexibility um, in providing uh, grain options around the world. Uh, let me just ask uh, one last question. Um, appreciate your time. Um, you mentioned um, detained Americans in Russia, um, and I mean, we have a connection to Evan Gerskovich here because Marka Watch and Barons are sister publications of the journal. Um, why do these cases seem to take so long to get involved? What can you tell us about the negotiations that are happening? And um, has the U.S. formally requested formula, formal, formal consul, consular access to Gerskovich? Uh, sorry about that. We absolutely, it's okay. Those are all great questions. We absolutely have uh, uh, requested consular access, routine consular access to Evan. Uh, we have had limited access to him, largely only through his appearances. Like he just went up for... Uh, you know, he had an appeal hearing for his detention, which, of course, the Russian system denied. So we've been able to have some consular access in, in keeping with the milestones of the so-called judicial process there. Uh, but we haven't had regular access to him uh, such as we uh, re require. So we are definitely making that case uh, very, very stridently with the, with the Russian officials. Um, your, your question about why it takes so long. I um, mean, look at Mr. Whalen, who's been basically in prison for a decade now, uh, wrongfully detained uh, on espionage charges. Um, each case is unique. Each one is different, um, no matter where you're operating around the world. But even in a specific country, each case is different. We were able to get Brittany Griner home from uh, Russia, but we were not able to get Paul because they treated Paul differently. Uh, Brittany was convicted on drug charges they convicted Paul on espionage charges. So they didn't consider them at the same level. And we just weren't able to get Paul home, even though we could get Brittany home. Now we're still working, uh, obviously, very, very hard on Mr. Whalen's case, and that's not gonna stop. Um, and obviously, we're uh, also working uh, just as hard uh, to get Evan home uh, as well, uh, also charged with espionage, which is, of course, ludicrous and ridiculous. He's a journalist. He was doing the work of journalism, not espionage. Um, but each case is unique, each case is different. Um, and you just got to you got to keep having those discussions and working out options um, uh, individually uh, to get to get these uh, to get these gentlemen home. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're, we're focused on it. And I can uh, assure uh, both families who we obviously 
do the best we can to keep them informed, but assure them that uh, there's not a day that goes by that the, the team here at the National Security Council isn't focused on it, as well as our colleagues at the State Department, uh, the Special Envoy for Hostage Affairs, uh, Mr. Carstens, is, is absolutely laser focused on this. Uh, and we're just going to keep trying and we'll and we'll be as flexible as we need to be um, to to uh, to get both of these gentlemen home, obviously in keeping with our own national security interests. But first and foremost, the priority, getting them back to their families where they belong. OK, I, I know you like to be a punctual guy and I've taken you maybe three minutes late to your next meeting. Uh, thank you very much, Admiral, for taking time to be with us today. Uh, thanks to our viewers um, for tuning in. Uh, we hope we hope you listen to our next episode tomorrow. It'll be Barron's deputy editor, Ben Levison, and healthcare reporter Josh, Josh uh, Nathan Kazis. They'll discuss recent developments in biotech, pharma, and other parts of the healthcare industry and the outlook for those stocks. Uh, thank you all for listening today. Goodbye. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.